HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School. Coming up March 13th through 21st, 2021 is their 28th annual spring conference. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. The bigger companies got overwhelmed, and as they shut their websites down, the tributaries of folks wanting seed went to all of the rest of the smaller companies. So we, like I kind of heard upstream that, oh, big company is closing its doors because they're overwhelmed, and immediately that, like, our order volume shot through the roof. And when we closed, we had to shut down our website, 10 other companies, suddenly, you know, their stuff went through the roof. It, it seemed like people were trying to get seeds anywhere they could and really just thought that basically, you know, that we were going to see ourselves in the Hollywood version of the end of the world. Um, so it, it, it is that moment where we go, oh, it doesn't matter at this point who is open or who is not open. There's just like people beating on the doors basically for seed. Seeds are the source and symbol of life. These small embryos lie dormant until they're sown, then germinate and grow into much of the food that we consume on a daily basis. In our modern food system, with fewer and fewer people physically involved in the practice of agriculture, it's easy to forget that our sustenance comes from the heroics of these persistent organisms. With our growing season just around the corner, we're sowing seeds of knowledge and empathy through four unique stories this week. We dig into why some seed sellers were recently out of stock despite not experiencing an actual shortage of seeds. We harvest ideas from an episode of Fields, a new urban farming podcast on HRN, on how seeds have unlocked the secrets of time travel and what they could tell us about the future. We forage through the world of invasive species and how they can be a proxy for migratory groups and sentiments toward immigrants. We conclude with a story on the cultural importance of heirloom seeds in the Cherokee Nation and their historical struggle to attain seed sovereignty. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. For our first story, we take a look at one of the ways the seed industry has been impacted by the pandemic. It's a phenomenon that I experienced firsthand when I went to buy seeds this year. 
Here's Alicia Chan with a story she reported in conjunction with Kevin Chang Barnum. Back in March 2020, when we first locked down, yes, that was a whole year ago, the seed industry suddenly saw a huge uptick in orders. And with the need for households to keep following social distancing requirements, it isn't hard to see why. People are forced to stay at home, work from home, eat at home, so naturally, many people also wanted to grow from home. Flash forward to 2021, and this inflating balloon of seed orders still hasn't popped. I just started noticing that I would go online to start to collect my items in my shopping cart, and they would say things like, oh, we're only taking home gardening orders on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. That's Katie Mosman-Wadler. You might recognize her voice as the host of this episode of Meet in 3. She's also HRN's executive director and an avid amateur gardener. I thought, that's weird. And I, I would put this stuff in my cart and then, like, I, I did. And I came back on Tuesday and I told my friend who I was going to share some seeds with, I was like, okay, so Tuesday we have to put the order in. Um, we did that, but still a lot of things were not available. Today, if you wanted to buy seeds online, you'd be greeted by a plethora of warning banners indicating long wait lists and imminent delays. On the surface, it seems that they've run out of seeds. But here's the big question. Is there really a seed shortage? So there is no seed shortage, um, is what my reporting has found. This is Lisa Held. I am a journalist. I host The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm the senior policy reporter for Civil Eats, and I also write for other publications. She recently researched and wrote a story for Civil Eats about the alleged seed shortage on our hands. And what I'm hearing is that they all have plenty of seeds available, but the demand for seeds is so high that they just can't keep up. Um, They just can't get them packaged, like the bulk seeds turned into actual seed packets. They're just coming in so quickly. So even though websites are saying things like out of stock, the problem isn't a shortage of seeds, but actually how quickly companies can physically pack and ship orders. One company told me they're seeing five times the number of orders compared to a typical January. Other companies are, you know, twice as much, three times as much. And also, because of COVID-19, they can't just bring in a crazy amount of people. There are restrictions on that because of COVID. To learn more about how this demand is affecting seed companies, we talked to Heron Breen. Heron works at Fedco Seeds. I've been there for 22 years, and my career there has basically spanned all the different operations of the business. This is a new one for me. I've not seen this before. He told us that demand might be even higher if Fedco didn't make efforts to regulate it. You know, we're probably at four to five times normal. If we just allowed everyone to place orders seven days a week without any kind of limits or controls, there's probably points where we could have been 10 times normal. Bending under the pressures of a global pandemic and high influx of seed orders, seed companies like Fedco have been forced to limit supplies. But where is all this demand coming from? Back to Lisa. This is people who maybe one of two reasons are getting into gardening for the first time. One is panic. There were disruptions to the food system and people were thinking, oh my God, maybe I should start growing more of my own food. And then two, just, you know, people are home. They are staying home. They have, maybe they have more time um, because they're not going out and seeing friends. They're not going anywhere, (laughs) really. 
So while demand is skyrocketing, there just doesn't seem to be enough workers to keep up with the orders. That means companies like Fedco need to make a decision about how far in advance they want to operate. And we are choosing to try to not get more than two or three weeks behind. Because at that point, at two or three weeks, we can't really guarantee the inventory that we have. There's just too many variables. Part of the problem is how unpredictable shipping is right now. If Fedco gets behind on its orders and shipping companies also have delays... Then somebody who might be a farmer or is trying to start something early or whatever is basically out of luck. To limit the number of seed orders, Fedco requires customers who are trying to buy certain seeds to put their names on a wait list. This includes vegetable seeds, flower seeds, and herb seeds. Fulfilling all those orders is especially difficult to deal with alongside the other changes that the pandemic has brought. Heron says that when customers buy seeds, they should be mindful of what the sellers they talk to might be going through. He explained that a lot of employees have been working overtime for months. Folks really need just to realize when they're dealing with any service that someone's providing that there's somebody who's a human on the other side of that phone or that email or that package. And it's not just seed sellers that customers should think about. Heron urges customers to consider the other people who are buying seeds. If you insist on buying seeds right now, you might be taking food away from low-income families whose food security depends on getting their seeds on time. There's also farmers, Heron says, along with market growers and organizations who help make up the 40% of seed sales that go to people who are not home gardeners. Are you a person in need? If, if, we're, if I'm telling you that a company like Fedco or another company can only process so many orders in a week, and one of those orders is yours, ask yourself, are you a person that is in need or are you a person that's in want? I think some of this, folks, you know, we need to reflect on this from some of the considerations that folks have been having over the last six or eight months around diversity, equity, and inclusion about what want and need is. And I would ask folks to take a, take a look at that themselves before they place an order. You know, that's a choice. While there is no seed shortage per se, it is important that we don't have a shortage of empathy. A single person's actions can have far-reaching effects on our food system. When you buy seed, you're embedded in a biological system. And biological systems are best managed with reason and forethought, not with fear and reaction. Heron started working at Fedco during the Y2K panic. He says there was increased buying then and after the housing bubble of 08 although not on the level of what he's seeing now. Even so, it's a cycle that repeats itself. The country faces a crisis, and people who are worried for their future dip their fingers into the soil again. It's a way to stay grounded, to plant seeds for our future. But if we want to make sure that the future can feed as many people as possible, we have to practice a value that farmers and gardeners have understood for a very long time. Patience. To read more about the seed shortage, not seed shortage, head over to the show notes and check out Lisa Held's Civil Eats article titled, The COVID Gardening Renaissance Depends on Seeds If You Can Find Them. Heron also urges customers not to waste resources by buying extra seeds or buying seeds that they don't know how to grow. Seeds are tough. Some can even survive for thousands of years. 
In this excerpt from HRN's new series, Fields, we hear from Ellie Irons, PhD student at Rensselaer Polytechnic and Arts Practice, and a founder of the Next Epoch Seed Library. The library is an art project dedicated to helping folks reconsider their perceptions of the wild urban plants that many deem to be a nuisance. New plants in your area are not always invaders, and we may stand to benefit from them. Here's Ellie. Basically, we heard some of these news stories about um, seeds being regenerated after thousands of years of being dormant. So the Jerusalem date palm seed that was found in ruins in the Middle East and then sprouted into a new date palm after 2,000 years. Just, and then yeah. it's now reproducing. I remember <laughs> and that. it's kind of a wow. strain of palm, yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. So we heard that story and a few others like that. And it's just really captured our imagination. So we started thinking about how to frame that so people could imagine burying a seed now and having it unearth in a new climate future and like what that would be like and what kinds of seeds you wow. might choose to bury and pointing out that we're surrounded by seeds that have already adapted to live with us. And they're actually already kind of living in the future because cities are hotter and they're more polluted and they're more fragmented. And these are the plants that can deal with that. So what happens if we bury them and imagine them waking up in a hundred years or something? And the way they travel through time is basically that they stay alive with a very small amount of energy. This attention to seeds and deep time and the ancient past, it isn't just for fun. It's for understanding the world we are going to have to live in, a world that's changing rapidly, and what that's going to look like, what plants are going to live with us. You have artists who are really trying to reframe, who are trying to make you maybe think differently about things like weeds, seeds that nobody necessarily wants that aren't quote-unquote native to an area but are introduced there and are thriving there because maybe that area has changed over time. Ellie and her baby had thoughts. Another valence that I hear all the time is that they're, oh, they're not native and because they're not native, therefore they're bad. It's this equation of like native, not native or introduced always means out of balance or always means invasive. And so often in the city... They're living in places that are already damaged and where whatever we think of as a native habitat is so far from being present anymore. Like their lamb's quarter growing in a place that used to have marsh cord grass, like that cord grass can't grow there anymore. It's no longer an estuary. So there's this like fear that somehow weeds over six inches are associated with blight and especially when you get into the dialogue around weeds as invaders from other countries, it starts to have these really troubling parallels with the way that we talk about people who move. And that's why often Mm. when we talk about introduced plants, we'll talk about them as migrant plants. Like climate change is changing habitats. Plants are moving around. People are moving around. And um, we need to really think carefully about how we welcome or don't welcome these beings. To learn more about Ellie, her partner at the New Epic Seed Library, and how one farmer is combating cultural erasure with the modern seed industry, check out episode one of HRN's Fields in the show notes or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School. Coming up March 13th through 21st, 2021 is their 28th annual Spring Conference. Organic Grower School Spring Conference is a -a one-of-a-kind event that offers workshops on organic growing and sustainable living. Its mission is to provide down-to-earth practical advice while remaining affordable and accessible. This year, the conference is going virtual and will be accessible to more people than ever before. Attendees will learn how to farm, garden, and live organically through 12 tracks and more than 30 workshops. It will feature three keynote talks, Q&As, and lunchtime entertainment. Tracks include cooking, gardening, herbs, mushrooms, permaculture, sustainable living, and more. Plus, it's affordable, starting at just $20. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Next up, Anna Oaks picks up the conversation on weeds and invasive species. In the summer of 2019, a CBS local news station reported on a new enemy wreaking havoc on New York City. 10% of the city is made up of natural areas and the land is quickly being taken over by invasive foreign species. It's not supposed to grow in New York and like similar foreign plants is causing a loss in biodiversity. If it's not addressed, the exotic plants could kill all the native trees the city just planted in this area. This invading force was actually a species of flowering buckwheat, Persicaria perfoliata. It's typically found throughout Eastern Asia, and as a young plant, it's delicious sautéed or raw in a salad. In Chinese medicine, it's often used to stimulate blood circulation, reduce fever, and treat pain and snake bites. In the U.S., though, this plant takes on a different name, mile-a-minute weed. It's thought to have arrived in seed form in the 1930s, hitching a ride on a rhododendron, a kind of large flowering bush popular in gardens. Now, mile-a-minute weed is classified as a dangerous, highly invasive species. I'm always shocked at how aggressive people are with their language about things that they don't like. You'll have something like Japanese knockweed, and they'll say, you know, these are terrible, they're they're foreigners, they're invasive, and you know, but they're also, you know, they're really healthy if you eat them, you know, when they're young and early. <laughs> um, so they have, you know, they have lots of nutrients that we need as as humans. So Maybe, you know, the question is, maybe we don't know how to use them yet. Jan Moon is an artist who uses digital media and living organisms to explore and critique political and social systems. One of her recent projects, called Model Citizen Assimilation, involves packaging and distributing the seeds of so-called invasive plants. The seed envelopes are printed to look like U.S. green cards, and the text of each one lists the plant's scientific name, their official category as a noxious or invasive weed, and how long they've been resident in the U.S. Jan makes a connection between the experiences of East Asian female immigrants and other kinds of migrants, like seeds. She also plays with assumptions about objectivity and Western scientific categorization, which have historically been used to rank certain ethnicities or species over others. 
the earliest immigration laws were created in the U.S. Um, to prevent East Asians out of the country, specifically Chinese. So um, the earliest immigration laws were created sort of as anti-Chinese legislation. You know, this idea that if you kept the female out of the country, then that population could not then, you know, reproduce and thrive. So I created these seed envelopes that look like they're kind of modeled after the U.S. residential green cards. And um, the criteria for selecting each of the plants were that they were non-native and they were considered weedy or invasive. By drawing these connections between plant and human migrants, Jan makes us question what we consider natural or native. People are thinking about, you know, this sort of before Columbus came kind of thing. And that's, you know, that's really romanticizing these ideas about Native Americans, too. So which is pretty, you know, racist. It's useful to remember that what we see as a desirable or undesirable species, like a weed, can change in different cultural or geographic contexts. Marissa Preffer is an herbalist and land steward who points out that there's a lot to learn from plants that we usually ignore or try to get rid of. A lot of those plants are also considered weeds, which I like to define a weed as a plant that's growing somewhere where a human doesn't want it to grow or or notices that it maybe shouldn't be growing. Um, But a lot of these same plants are also valued medicine plants in a lot of cultures. They're also plants that help to keep soil in place, and especially in cities, that becomes really important. They're also plants that help to mitigate rainwater and flooding and overflow of our our sewage system. So they're plants that are providing functions as well, even if they might seem unsightly or undesirable or undesired. Marissa advocates a more balanced approach to maintaining or stewarding ecosystems. That's not to say that the answer is to let all species run wild, though. Obviously, we we want the land to be in check in some ways. You know, we want to be in community with with our landscape. In my opinion, I want to both take care of the land and then acknowledge that the land has the ability to take care of of me. And so part of it is, is acknowledging where we are now and that we're at a point where there's work we have to do to get back in balance. Both Jan and Marissa work to rethink and break down binaries of what's useful and what isn't, of what's native and what's invasive, or where plants are supposed to grow and where they aren't. Like Persicaria perfoliata. In one context, it's medicinal. In another, it's classified as a weed that must be eradicated. We don't have to welcome all plants or their seeds with open and undiscerning arms, nor should we. But it's still worth considering that ecosystems of both plants and people are in flux. Many of these plants are here to stay, and we may just need to explore new ways of living together. In our final story, Tosh Kimmel calls attention to the Cherokee Nation's quest to recultivate their heirloom seeds. There's this old uh, idiom from Cherokee lore No self-respecting Cherokee would ever be without a corn patch. That's Pat Gwynn, the Senior Director of Environmental Resources for the Cherokee Nation. He calls me from his home in Oklahoma. As Pat explains, the ancestral plants and foods of the Cherokee Nation are cultural cornerstones and are integral to their identity and relationship to the land. 
However, it was not too long ago that getting your hands on any heirloom Cherokee seed, let alone a corn kernel, was near impossible. The Cherokee Nation in 2005-ish was like the rest of the world and somewhat enthralled with the story of the Svalbard uh, Global Seed Vault. And the then tribal council had requested uh, that uh, the tribe put some of its uh, heirloom seeds into that facility. I was tasked with that job. And unfortunately, just a little bit of research and so forth showed that almost zero of our heirloom crops uh, made the Trail of Tears. So we didn't have anything to place in the vault. Between 1836 and 1839, nearly 16,000 Cherokees were forcibly removed from their ancestral lands to modern-day Oklahoma in what's now known as the Trail of Tears. Like the myriad of other artifacts lost to the Cherokee people on that infamous and arduous journey, the loss of heirloom seeds and its lasting impact on native food sovereignty is not something easily remedied. So at that point in time, you know, the, the tribal council, the tribal administration went into crisis mode and said, uh, Pat, I'm not sure what your priorities and your job are, but now they are this, you know, scour the earth's resources to find examples of these uh, heirlooms and commence growing them. And they had basically forgot about the seed vault at that time. It was pretty much a five-year job to, you know, to secure 30-ish of our seeds. I got some from uh, educational institutions. I got some from the USDA. I got some from the Eastern Band. First one that I found was white eagle corn, which is probably our oldest heirloom. When he began this journey over 10 years ago, Pat could never have known what this job would entail and how it would envelop his life. In 2006, with a small collection of seeds, the first heirloom garden was planted. And since then, demand has skyrocketed. These seeds not only serve as a symbol of cultural ingenuity, but also as a cultural tether to those living off the reservation. The first year that we started growing, which I believe would have been 2006, obviously not with the full complement that we have now. After that process, I had you know some excess seeds that I just didn't know what to do with. And since then, uh, I have been struggling to keep up with demand, struggling with the uh, Hey, you have to keep people happy, so make sure that you grow a good crop so we can send out, you know, thousands and thousands of seeds. Today, the Cherokee Nation not only has a seed bank, but a distribution program which gifts thousands of seeds to tribal citizens across the country every year. This spring, as they begin their annual distribution, the Cherokee Nation will celebrate 15 years of cultural preservation, offering thousands a chance at their very own corn patch. We started with with nothing, and it uh, wasn't... The year before last, uh, we had one of our best uh, harvests. Uh, in Cherokee culture, uh, there are a couple of tenets that talk about what it takes to keep Cherokees to keep Cherokees Cherokee. One of those things is is that uh, you know, as long as Cherokees have their language, they will be Cherokee. Another one of those tenets is as that as long as Cherokees have their plants, they will remain Cherokee. So uh, it's hard to, to overstate that. In January of 2020, the tribe was invited by the Svalbard Seed Vault to deposit their heirloom seeds, the same seed vault which indirectly sparked it all in 2005. And so just like a seed, from humble beginnings came fruitful endings. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Ryder Bell, Alicia Chan, Kevin Chang Barnum, Armin Spengen, 
Anna Oaks, and Tosh Kimmel. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet in Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>